Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. When we travel by air, as the Honduras team is that we commissioned uh, is getting ready to do, I don't know about you, but I prefer direct flights, right? Not crazy about the connecting flights. However, uh, sometimes we have to take connecting flights. One of the one of the great privileges of my life has been to take multiple trips to Eastern Europe to train pastors uh, in in Ukraine, and a, a very typical flight pattern on those trips would be to leave Charlotte and go to New York and then from New York fly to Paris and then a couple hour layover from Paris over to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. Pretty typical flight pattern. Today at Harvest, we're going to take a journey, a flight as it were, to Hebrews chapter 3. But we're not going there on a direct flight. It's a connecting flight. First, we're going to go to Exodus 17. And after we land there for a brief layover, we're going to fly over to Psalm 95. And then another brief layover. And then ultimately we'll, we'll land in Hebrews chapter 3. We're teaching through the book of Hebrews, and we come to chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, but Hebrews 3 looks back to Psalm 95, and Psalm 95 looks back to Exodus 17. So we're going to start at Exodus 17. So if you have a Bible, I invite your attention there. These passages talk about different kind of hearts, three kind of hearts, and the first, Exodus 17, talks about hearts that challenge God. The setting of Exodus 17 is God's people, Israel, are wandering through the wilderness. They have been rescued out of Egypt. God delivered them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and the intention was to take them into Canaan, the land that was promised for them. They could have made that trip in about 11 days. But because uh, they disobeyed God and they had unbelief, 11 days became 40 years of wandering. Exodus chapter 17, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. That's not good when you're in the desert. So they quarreled with Moses. And they said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst. Now, think about that. Think what they were like in Egypt as slaves. 
as mistreated. And they were rescued. And now because they don't have any water right at that particular moment, they're like, why did you bring us out here to die? They grumbled. They complained. And verse 4, Moses cried out to the Lord. What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because of the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? He called them these terms. Massa means testing and Meribah means quarreling. So it was one place, but he gave them the names. Massa and Meribah symbolize an entire generation of people that test God, that challenge God, that quarrel against God. They had seen the mighty works in Egypt. They had seen God do amazing things. But now in those moments, their needs weren't being met, they thought. It wasn't as they wanted it to be. So what did they do? Did they trust God? Did they pray to God? Did they submit to God and say, God, you brought us here. Will you provide now? No, they grumbled. (laughs) They quarreled. They challenged. It's like, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? So Exodus 17 presents a generation of people that are known for challenging God. Not not a good thing to be known for, right? (laughs) That was what they were known for, challenging God. Now, time for the second leg of the journey. Hearts that worship God. Psalm 95 is a great psalm that talks a lot about worship. It calls God's people to worship. And in the psalm, we'll see a lot of components of worship. So it starts out, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Worship. One of the elements of worship is joyfully celebrating God. That's why we sing. Whether or not we're professional singers or good singers, we come together as a body to sing, to celebrate God because he's God. We sing to him and notice how everything points to him. See what's highlighted there in yellow? To the Lord. Shout aloud to the rock. Extol him with music. Now, let me ask you three questions and you think about what these questions have in common. The first one is this. I hear you went to the baseball game last week. How was it? Second, did everyone enjoy the concert? Third one, did you have a good time at the party? 
All three of those questions have one thing in common, that is, what did you get out of it? (laughs) You know, how did you enjoy the baseball game? How did you enjoy the concert? How did you enjoy the party? In worship, the central idea, the central issue is not how much did you enjoy it. The issue is what did you give? That's what the essence of worship is. The essence of corporate worship is coming to give, not coming to evaluate, not coming to receive, but it is coming to give something to God. Your heart, your life, your praise, it's joyfully celebrating him. And verse 3 gives us the reason why our praise should be so enthusiastic. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. So worship is joyfully celebrating God and it is giving praise directly to God. It's coming before him. And that's what we do here on Sunday mornings when we gather corporately. We are not gathered to listen to anybody sing. We're gathered to let us all sing to God together and all praise God together and put our focus on God. It's giving praise to God. It's joyfully celebrating before him. Let's keep going in the passage. There's There's another element to it as well. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Worship also involves reverence. Before God. Without reverence, the celebration of the early verses would ring hollow. On the one hand, God is caring. He's a shepherd. On the other hand, he is great. He is awesome. He is the creator. So God is far above us, but he is also very near us and dear to us. If God cared but wasn't great, he would be too weak to be worshipped. If he was great but didn't care, he would inspire either fright or apathy. But because he is both, we worship. Now, at this point in the psalm, the tone changes. It's one psalm. It's all about worship. But it just burst out on the scene about joyfully celebrating God and saying these things to God and singing to God and coming before God and doing so in a reverent sense. But now God speaks directly. Today, if you would only, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. As you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, 
though they had seen what I did. All right, let's see who is awake and alert. This is a really tough question. How many of you recognize those words on the screen right there, where they might come from? It comes from Exodus 17. This is Exodus 17. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. What a sad, sad statement that is. They have not known God, what God's ways, even though he was their God, he was their shepherd. He had led them through all of these miracles and it appeared to them time and time again. But they had no understanding that God was good and that God led his flock in the best ways. They did not have appreciation or love for God's kind way of leading his people. I want to tell you something. It is so far off the mark to think that God wants to rob you of joy if you follow him. But that's what our flesh wants to tell us, and that's what our society wants to tell us, that if you follow God's ways as revealed in the Scripture, oh, you're just giving up your own fun and your own joy, right? That is far off the mark. God's ways are best. And this whole generation didn't know that. They haven't understand and notice the terrible consequence they shall never enter my rest. Now, for them, that rest was Canaan. <laughs> that rest was the land that was promised. God wanted to get them to a land where there would be peace and prosperity and protection. That would be their rest. We'll talk in a few minutes about the rest that we still have as God's people, but that's what it was for them. Now, as Exodus or as Psalm 95 points back to Exodus 17, it reminds us that a critical part of worship is hearing and obeying God. Hearing and obeying God is just as important to worship as singing joyfully to God. True praise and submissive obedience go hand in hand. It's good to worship God, but as F.F. F. Bruce says, acts and words of worship are acceptable only as they proceed from sincere and obedient hearts. Now, a lot of times people think of worship when they use the word worship, they think about what we sing or what we pray or maybe what we feel as we gather with God's people. One of the primary acts of worship is hearing and obeying God's word. This psalm makes that really, really clear. That's why, for instance, we do what is called expository preaching at Harvest. We take the scripture and we go verse by verse straight through it. This is where God speaks. It's in his book. It's in his word to us rather than opening the Bible, reading a verse, and then talking about everything else. So Exodus 17 and Psalm 95 talk about hearts that challenge God. They talk about hearts that worship God, respectively. Now, we're going to board that final flight and we're going to finally get to Hebrews chapter 3. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to see the call to have hearts that believe and 
obey God. Now, the context of Hebrews chapter 3, the beginning of this chapter spoke about the importance of continuing to believe and and the danger of unbelief. That's what Hebrews 3, the beginning part of Hebrews 3 was about. Now, the second part of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, are going to give us a warning about that specific danger, and, and they're going to give a powerful example. So in Hebrews 3, 7 to 19, there are three commands for the heart. The first one is this. Don't follow the example of those who hardened their hearts in the desert. Verse 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestor tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. All right. Another tough question. How many of you recognize those words? (laughs) All right. Hebrews 3 indeed quotes Psalm 95. And notice the author says, as the Holy Spirit says. God used human people to write the Bible, but the divine, the real true author is God himself. And here, the, the third member of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, the Holy Spirit said in Psalm 95. That's what he's saying. That is why I was angry. With that generation, I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The people of God in the Old Testament missed God's rest because they disobeyed. And now this writer does not want his readers and, of course, by extension, us to miss God's rest either. Now, that's going to be elaborated on. More in chapter 4 in the next chapter of Hebrews, what this rest is that we have. But basically, our ultimate rest as Christians is going to come in heaven. That's the ultimate final rest for us. But there's a rest on earth right now. You can have God's rest. It's the peace of God. It's knowing God. It's ceasing to wander. It's ceasing to strive in life, and it's just enjoying God and enjoying the presence of God and the peace of God because you are made right with God through Jesus. That's what it means to have rest right now. I hope today that you are experiencing God's rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 says, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. But in this passage, he says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's not just testing the audible functions of their ears. Parents, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever said to your children after it appeared possibly that maybe they weren't doing what you had asked? Did you hear me? All right, how many of you said that? Let's see. 
Hopefully I'm not the only one. Okay. Did you hear me? I remember one time when my son was, my oldest son was young, we were riding bikes and he was riding right behind me and we were going down a street and then I saw a car coming this way. He was very young and I said, Jonathan, stay right behind me. Stay right behind me. I didn't want him to pull out to the side and I, and he didn't say anything. And so I'm like, Jonathan, did you hear me? I wanted to make sure he heard it in his ears, but he also accepted it in his heart, right? So today, if hearing God's voice is not just reading the Bible or listening to a sermon, but it's, it's really taking in God's voice. And how do we hear it? In a dream, in an audible voice? Not normally. Primarily, it's through the Word of God. By listening and obeying. Do not harden your hearts. I, I can give you an absolute promise this morning that every one of you, every time, every one of us, every time we attend a church service and hear a sermon from God's word. Every time we open the Bible and read it ourselves. Every time we attend a Bible study one of two things is going to happen in our hearts. We are either going to be drawn to God because we submit and obey and welcome and receive the voice of God through his word, or we're going to be hardened. There's no middle ground. It's not like, well, it's just... Our hearts will either be hardened to go further away from God, or we will be obedient and submissive To be drawn closer to God. And so the implication, remember at the beginning of chapter 3, perhaps you'll remember that Jesus is greater than Moses. Well, if Jesus is greater than Moses and these people in the wilderness, look what happened to them because they didn't follow Moses. It's a lot more serious not to follow Jesus. So don't follow the example of those who harden their hearts in the desert. Second command is watch out for an unbelieving heart. Now, this command is very related to the first one. You could even conceive of them as one one command, but it's an actual second command in the original. So see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, this is a warning to the Christian community in the first century, brothers and sisters. If the Israelites missed out on their promised land because of their unbelief, make sure that you don't miss out on closeness to God. Make sure that you don't miss out on rest in God because of your unbelief. In any church, in any gathering, there is the possibility that some people attend and participate outwardly, but don't have the inward reality of a transformed heart that's been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And secondly, there are those who have a sinful heart that turn away from God. That, that's the two categories. People are, have been saved, not perfect, but they've been saved and their hearts are, are, are drawn to God. And then the second category is those who have a sinful heart that, that turn away from God. I think all sin stems from unbelief. Every sin imaginable stems from unbelief. We know it in our mind, maybe, but we don't really, really believe what God says about something. So 
a man has an extramarital affair because he ultimately, he doesn't truly believe what God says about sex and marriage. A woman worries herself sick about finances because ultimately she doesn't truly, deeply believe about what God says about provision. A teenager follows the popular crowd at school and gets into drugs and alcohol because he or she doesn't truly believe that Jesus' words give life. But I don't think this warning in verse 12 is just about those kinds of sin. I think textually... It's about turning away from God completely. It's about rebelling against him. Remember, the first readers of Hebrews were tempted. They were Jewish believers who were now being tempted to turn back away from Jesus and to make a total final break, which we call apostasy, to make this total final break and to go back away from Jesus back into their former religion. That kind of relapse would be comparable to what the Israelites did at Kadesh Barnea when they rebelled against God and his appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. So by application, be careful that you don't have the kind of heart that would make such a complete break with Christ. This is where we need the grace of God. Salvation is by grace through faith. Salvation is when someone admits I'm lost, I need Jesus, he died for me to pay for my sin, I turn my heart over to him, I receive him, and God does a transforming work in our heart that saves us and keeps us. But you know what? It's interesting how God has designed it. He's also designed us to need each other. And so when we go to verse 13 and we get the third command, notice what he says. Encourage each other daily to protect your hearts from the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin is difficult. It's hard. How are we going to protect ourselves from being deceived by it and turning completely away from God? This is where brothers and sisters in Christ Come together, but encourage one another daily as it is long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. This command is also very related to the previous one. It's like they're presenting two sides of the obedient heart. Negatively, watch out for the unbelieving heart. Positively, encourage each other. Get involved in each other's lives. Sin is deceitful. It looks good and appears good and may feel good at first. But it ends up destroying us. It separates us from God. And we go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? And God had created this perfect environment for them and said, you can eat everything you want here except for one thing. And what did Satan do when he was trying to deceive Eve? It's like, oh, God said you can't eat that. Oh, God knows that. It's going to make you wiser. You're going to be like God if you eat it. So 
It was like, oh, and even Genesis 3 says, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Sin is deceitful. It did not turn out well for Adam and Eve, did it? (laughs) Because they were deceived by sin. It's like, oh, this looks good. How many of you are, I started to say old enough, but I'm, I, I scratched that. How many of you remember the actor and comedian and musician John Belushi? You, you know that name? Forty years ago, he died of an overdose of cocaine and heroin. And when that happened, a lot of articles started coming out about the dangers and the deceitfulness of, of cocaine, including these words from U.S. News and World Report. Speaking of cocaine, it can do you no harm and it can drive you insane. It can give you status in society and it can wreck your career. It can make you the life of the party and it can turn you into a loner. It can be an elixir for high living and a potion for death. That is definitely a picture of what all sin is. It promises these things to us, but it's, it's deceitful. How can we overcome it? Verse 13 gives in a very important way, a very important how-to. This is how we survive spiritually. This is how we keep from drifting away from God. We do it through biblical community. We do it by living in community with each other. We do it by encouraging each other. Believers are called to help each other spiritually. And you know what? You have to know somebody more than just, hi, how are you, to be able to do this. <laughs> Can't really happen on Sunday morning. I'm, I'm thankful for Sunday morning. It's great. We see each other. We We shake hands, we high-five, we hug, we do whatever, and it's nice and it's good, and I believe it's genuine, but it can only go to a certain level of depth, right? That's why we encourage all believers to be connected with a smaller group of believers and do community and do life with them. I hadn't planned to say this, but they've been here long enough. I think I can say it. Anton Neiman's mother, uh, father passed away in South Africa, and uh, he's there back with us today. I, I was talking to Lynette a couple nights ago, and I had not heard about this until kind of after the fact. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry to hear about it. And Lynette said to me, it's okay. Our community group knew about it, was praying with us, has encouraged us, and done this and that and the other. That's a beautiful example of how community can come together. And it can come together in crisis times like that to help us in times like that. But community also helps us keep from turning our backs against God, right? That's what he's saying. Encourage one another daily. Lift each other up. Isolated people tend to succumb to temptation more often. Paul Cedar said, my most painful experiences have been when I've had a problem and no one loved me enough to tell me about it. 
In his book, Stories for the Journey, William R. White shares the story of Hans, a a European seminary professor who was devastated by the death of his wife, Enid. Hans was so overcome with sorrow that he didn't want to eat and he didn't want to leave the house. So the seminary president and three other professors decided to visit him at his house. And he confessed to them, guys, I'm struggling with doubt. I'm no longer able to pray to God. In fact, I'm not certain I believe in God anymore. So there was a moment of silence. And then the seminary president said, then we will believe for you. We will keep praying for you. So those four men began meeting every day for prayer, asking God to restore the gift of faith to their friends. And one day, months later, as the four friends gathered for prayer, Hans said to them, It's no longer necessary for you to pray for me. Today, I would like you to pray with me. The power of community. Verse 14 says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Now, Hebrews 3, verse 6, already leading into this passage, has said we have come to... Uh, Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Last week I mentioned Jesus' words from the parable of the sower that show that genuine salvation produces fruit. That faith that does not persevere is not saving faith. I read a pastor's quote this week, Herschel York, who apparently this came from his father. And I I like it. There's a lot of F's in here. (laughs) A faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. A faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. And I think that's what Hebrews 3.14 is affirming. One deed is a true Christian, a partaker of Christ, if they hold that conviction firmly to the end. So these instances of if, if in Hebrews 3 describe true believers as those who persevere in faith. As it has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they... Were, not, were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? So today, this is the opportunity right now, he's saying. <laughs> this happened to them long ago, but right now, today. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Do you see how unbelief and disobedience, unfortunately, work together? So here's the kind of hearts that we can have. We can have hearts that challenge God. We can have hearts that worship God. We can have hearts that believe and obey God. 
They're all related, especially as it relates to belief and unbelief, to obedience and disobedience. And that's why I would summarize God's word from Hebrews chapter 3 as this. Rather than challenge God, rather than challenging God, worship and obey him from the heart. I think that's what Hebrews 3 is telling us. Rather than challenging God, worship and obey him from the heart. Proverbs 4 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. How's your heart today? (laughs) Are you hearing God's voice? Is he confronting you about complaining or self-pity? about sexual faithfulness, about your thought life? Has he spoken to you about pride or lust or greed or worry or truth-telling or using your time wisely? Is he impressing you to spend more time with your family, to increase your giving to his work? Have you heard his voice in these or any of his areas, other areas through his word? And here's just some practical ways. Let me start wrapping it up. Let me just give you some practical ways to guard your heart because it's all about the heart. And the first one is just fix your attention on Jesus. That's what Hebrews 3, 1 started out with. Fix your attention on Jesus. Put your eyes on him. This means praying and opening the word and having time in which you and God are alone In an unhurried fashion. That's a great practical way to guard your heart if you like. If you'll guard your schedule so that you can have those times, those regular times to do that. Another way is, is every time you engage with the Bible, whether again it's a sermon or a Bible study or something you read, if you'll make it a point... Not to just go away and say, okay, I agree with it. And it is true that the Bible has a cleansing effect on us. So whether you write anything down or not, the Bible is going to cleanse us. But something that I think is very, very helpful is if you always say, all right, what's at least one way that I can put this into practice? What's at least one way? Every devotion, every Bible study, every sermon, what's one thing that I can keep thinking about or keep doing? I think that is a very practical way to to guard your heart. And the third one is, I've already mentioned it, living in biblical community with each other. That takes some intentionality, that takes some time, but it is well, well worth it. Listen to this analogy from Sadhu Sundar Singh. He says, once when I was in the Himalayas, I was sitting on the bank of a river. I drew out of the water a beautiful round stone and smashed it. The inside of the stone was dry. The stone had been lying in the water a long time, but the water had not penetrated the stone. It's just like that with the Christian people of the West. They have for centuries been surrounded by Christianity, entirely steeped in its blessings. 
but the master's truth has not penetrated them. Christianity is not at fault. The reason lies rather in the hardness of their hearts. Materialism and intellectualism have made their hearts hard. So I'm not surprised that many people in the West do not understand what Christianity really is. Here's a great prayer for us. Psalm 86, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Church, rather than challenging God, let's, let's worship and obey him from the heart. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.